Hello, Skywatchers. Thanks for listening to our Look Up podcast. I'm Greg. And I'm Dara. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in November in our Cosmic Diary. So when you're looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. You should allow about 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when you're stargazing. And if you are using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. As the summer constellations begin to disappear from our evening skies, winter constellations are well on their way. Constellations like Orion the Hunter, Eridanus, often depicted as a river, and even Canis Major, one of Orion's packhounds, are making their appearances earlier and earlier in the night. Orion may not be high in the sky yet in the early evening, but it's still worth a look thanks to its wonderful array of celestial features. From deep orange Betelgeuse at his shoulder, through his striking belt of stars and Orion's nebula, all the way to Rigel at his knee, there's plenty to see whether you own a telescope, a pair of binoculars, or are merely using your own eyes. Canis Major is home to the brightest star in the night sky, Sirius, also known as the Dog Star. And over the next few months, it will begin to dominate the southern horizon with its bright white light. The twinkling effect of our atmosphere can bring out an array of momentary transient colours, making it a striking feature rising in the southeast around 11pm. Sirius is in fact a binary star system, consisting of a bright white main sequence star in the prime of its life, along with a very faint white dwarf star, the pair separable only with the most powerful telescopes. Andromeda is still high up in the sky throughout this month, with the Andromeda galaxy itself almost at zenith, the point directly overhead, throughout the night. The light from objects near the zenith passes through the least amount of atmosphere to reach the ground, reducing its detrimental effects on any images taken, so this is the perfect time for astrophotographers to push themselves and get a shot of this faint deep sky object. The Andromeda galaxy is the most distant object visible to the naked eye, a faint fuzzy patch of light which is in fact just the core of the galaxy. Had we eyes capable of seeing the fainter disk of the galaxy, it would cover a region of the sky three times bigger than the full moon. And closer to home, the moon begins this month in its last quarter phase. Later, a thin crescent moon will pass by the bright stars Regulus and Algeba on the 2nd before reaching new moon on the 7th. The still-visible, dusk-embedded Saturn will be passed by the thin crescent moon on the 11th. A first-quarter moon will then pass by Mars between the 15th and 16th. Mars remains bright and clearly visible in the southern sky throughout this month until about 10pm each night, providing an excellent target for both naked eye and telescope observations. The moon will reach its full phase on the 23rd while close to the bright star Aldebaran, the bright eye of Taurus the Bull, before waning back to its last quarter phase on the 30th, back in the constellation of Leo the Lion. And finally, this month places host to a couple of major meteor showers. The northern Taurid shower, having begun in October, peaks on the night of the 11th and early morning of the 12th of November. Unfortunately, at a peak rate of around 5 per hour and no sign of periodic fireball activity this year, it is unlikely to be particularly spectacular. 
On the other hand, the Leonids peaking on the 17th and 18th may provide better luck. Though rates have exceeded 3,000 meteors per hour in the past, a rather more modest 15 per hour is expected this year. The gibbous moon may make spotting fainter meteors more difficult, but it may still be worth waiting until just after midnight for the best view. And remember, if you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them in to at ROG Astronomers. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website, rmg.co.uk. But now it's time for our cosmic news. Hello again, listeners, and thanks for joining us for the Cosmic News part of our podcast. This is where me and Greg both pick a news story which has broken in the past month that we've both found particularly interesting and would love to share with you. Uh, At the end of our podcast, we'll show you or lead you to where you might be able to vote for your favourite news story. As we continue throughout the year, me and Greg have our our little battle of who wins the most (laughs) and who picks the most interesting news story and... uh, I regret to say that Greg is beating me very uh, successfully this year. So hopefully Mm. I'll have picked uh, a very interesting story for you this month. But we're going to start with yours, Greg. So hit us with it. What have you found this month that has piqued your interest? So my story this month is all about this massive topic of habitability of uh, exoplanets. It's a big subject, and there's a good reason for that. Habitability is really very, very complex. It involves all sorts of uh, different variables all coming together in order to decide whether your planets can truly support life. And to be totally honest, we don't know the answer to all the questions anyway. Uh, Otherwise, we wouldn't be studying it. Um, But uh, we do know a few things. First of all, your planet must be within about the right distance from the star for uh, liquid water to be present on the surface. That's what um, they call the, the Goldilocks zone? Indeed, Goldilocks zone or the habitable zone. Um, and this is uh, this is always under the assumption that we're looking for life in some way similar to our own. So water, carbon-based life, that sort of thing. Um The main reason for that is that if you go beyond that, we have absolutely nothing to go on. We've no idea what the life would look like, and we don't know what effects it would have on uh, on its on the world if it were um, silicon based or used something other than water as its solvent. So we're going with what we know, basically. Exactly, absolutely. So we've got at least a chance of finding it. Yudara mentioned last month you were talking about uh, the habitability of Proxima Centauri b, um, this uh, planet around the our nearest neighbouring star, a red dwarf star, uh, not too far away, um, and whether it might be capable of supporting life. And you talked about all sorts of things like whether water was present, whether the atmosphere could actually support life, whether it would stay around sure. um, that atmosphere. Um, you also mentioned the problem of flares. And that's what I'm going to be talking about today. So stars are extremely active. This isn't particularly surprising. They are very, very hot. They have an intense amount of energy inside them. Uh, They are active places, huge balls of gas with a lot of energy inside them. So it's not particularly surprising that they send material off out into space every now and then. They have little mini explosions, as it were, on the surface. Like tantrums of stars. Yes, tantrums of stars, absolutely. And 
The magnetic field of a star also helps with this. So the magnetic fields of stars are very, very complex. We've talked about this in a, a previous podcast. Um, that the, the solar cycle and the changes in magnetic fields are very, very complex. Um, and every now and then the magnetic fields can actually fling material out, out into space. Um, and this material then travel off and potentially impact with nearby planets. So this is something that we do need to be aware of. Uh, the impact that a flare has is in part dependent on how much energy it has. So weak little flares, eh, who cares? Powerful flares, that's a problem. <laughs> we do care. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it also is dependent on whether your planet has its own defence system, which our one thankfully does. Our own magnetic field acts like a, a shield blocking the effects of the worst of solar flares. Um, however, that doesn't mean that we're completely invulnerable. We do, of course, live in the digital age, uh, where we are very much reliant on electronics and uh, communication via satellite and those sort of things. Um, and solar flares are potentially quite dangerous to that sort of infrastructure. But I'm talking about habitability rather than our own communications. They can be a lot more dangerous than that. Particularly powerful flares, uh, particularly on planets which don't have these strong magnetic fields, they can actually strip the atmosphere away, which obviously is pretty bad. That's not a good thing. I've just had this image in my head of building a sandcastle on a beach and then a wave just coming in and completely ruining my sandcastle. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, in a way, that's sort of what a, a powerful flare or series of powerful flares might be able to do, each washing a little bit more of your sandcast away. And the same would happen with the atmosphere of a planet which was under bombardment from strong solar flares. Now, our own sun does produce solar flares, um, but they tend to be relatively rare. And the powerful ones, the very, very powerful ones, are extremely rare. Um, the most powerful one in, uh, not living memory, but uh, in recent. Re recent enough memory, um, is, was the 1859 event, uh, which was recorded all across the world, but particularly by um, British astronomer Richard Carrington, after whom the event is now named. Um, and that produced a Rory that stretched all the way down to the tropics. Um, so you could see the, the Aurora Borealis and the Aurora Australis, yeah, the tropics of Cancer and Capricorn. These are exceptionally powerful uh, aurorae. So at much lower latitudes than we would ever expect. Far, far lower than we would normally expect. Um, and it had a bit of a darker side as well. It actually electrocuted some telegraph operators, uh, set fire to uh, certain electrical devices. And of course, this was before uh, electricity became as widespread as it currently is. So um, we are more vulnerable now than we were back then in certain respects. Um, however, stars like our own sun only actually make up a, a very small percentage, just a few percent of the stars in our Milky Way and indeed in other galaxies. Uh, massive stars, big blue stars, are even rarer. Um, and they don't last very long anyway. They last for a few hundred million years. Which not very long then. Not very long at all. <laughs> uh, well, considering life on our planet is this form of life that we're used to has taken several billion years to get to the point that it is. It's not particularly surprising that we're not really looking at very, very big stars when we're thinking about habitability. But red dwarf stars, they are exceptionally common. It's thought that they might be up to 75% of the stars in the Milky Way. So the majority by far. Mm, absolutely, potentially. And they have anything from about a tenth to a half of the mass of our sun. 
They are deep red stars, so uh, they're also not anywhere near as hot as our own sun. They produce far less light, um, which means that any planets around them that are going to be in the habitable zone have to be much, much closer. So we think that these stars might well be good places potentially for uh, to look for habitable planets, especially as these stars can last up to a trillion years. So there's time for life to evolve. Absolutely. Our own sun would only last about 10 billion. It's taken about half of that to get to the point that we are now. So having potentially 10, 100 times longer, who knows what life could do with that. But there's the problem. Red dwarf stars produce loads of flares loads of solar flares it's almost contrary to what we might think that they're the smaller cooler stars yet they're the most tantrum like stars that we get yep. the ones that are emitting loads of powerful flares yeah absolutely um and this is really not good they've been known for a little, quite a long while to be very very active um but there are still studies uh, being undertaken on them to, to try to understand and characterize this activity and one particular study undertaken using nasa's hubble space telescope was studying these what we call m dwarfs red dwarf stars um, the survey is called <clears throat> habitable zones and m dwarf activity across time which is one of these wonderful backronyms where they have attempted to make an acronym that spells something out by going backwards and finding words that fit. Um, HAZMAT is the shortened version of this one. Yes, fantastic. <laughs> uh, I sometimes wonder if astronomers have gone too far, and then I remember, yes, they have. Um, and so far, this particular study has worked on 12 red dwarfs, um, and has actually only used about a day, uh, less than a day, of Hubble Space Telescope observations. So a relatively small amount of time spent um, surveying these dwarfs. And yet, out of these 12 red dwarfs, they found 18 flares, 10 of which approach the most powerful flares that the sun has ever produced. Wow. Similar to those Carrington events. So in less than a day... 12 stars have produced 10 flares, almost as powerful as the most powerful flares we are aware of that the sun has ever produced. Yeah. So this means that flares that happen every few years, decades, or even centuries around our sun might be practically a daily event on red dwarf stars. And so that's... Sorry, go I on. I was just going to say, your quest for habitability then is, uh, is looking rather bleak. Uh, yes, this is very, very bad news for red dwarf habitability. Uh, red dwarf planets in particular have to be much, much closer to their star than uh, the, like our own Earth is compared to the, the yellow star that we're around. So they would be very much more vulnerable to solar flares than the Earth would. Adds to that the possibility of not having these magnetic fields. There's no particular reason to believe that they won't have them, but then again of the planets in our solar system the earth is uh, the earth and the gas giants are really the only ones to have very powerful magnetic fields the others are too small they've lost their magnetic fields they've cooled down too much so that is a big problem potentially we might find that red dwarf planets actually generally aren't very habitable now it is true that things do settle down a bit this is young red dwarf stars are particularly intense um, so after a few hundred million years the planets might be able to sort themselves out 
But if you've had your atmosphere stripped off over the course of hundreds of millions of years, there is a very valid question about where you're going to get another atmosphere from. Um, and that could be a big problem. Add to that the fact that many of these planets will be tidally locked, so one side will be much hotter than the other, and all of the problems that you talked about with Proxima Centauri B last week, uh, last month, uh, well, who knows? We're keeping our fingers <laughs> crossed, but we very much are. talking about 75% of the stars in our galaxy and we're almost deeming the planets around them unhabitable, we're, we're left with a, a rather small amount. Yeah, yeah, it's not looking great. Um, but there are still chances. Maybe other forms of life do exist out there. Maybe uh, later on in a red dwarf star's lifetime, maybe that's when life might begin to exist. Who knows? The quest continues. Yes. There is one other, a couple of other things I wanted to bring up. Uh, just a very, very quick update on... Uh, we've had a whole slew of different things happening with various different observatories and various other missions around the solar system. So I thought I'd give you a very quick update on some of the things that have been happening. Um, both Hubble and Chandra, two of the four NASA great observatories, which we've mentioned before, have had big problems this month. Yeah. Uh, both of them suffering from potentially serious malfunctions. We were biting our fingernails. How could we they go were, down? Absolutely. Um, so only five days apart, uh, reaction wheels on both of these uh, telescopes actually broke. These reaction wheels are designed to help point the telescope in the right place. Uh, for Hubble, they're used for very careful pointing. So without, uh, at least uh, without this reaction wheel being present and working properly, pointing this very, very precise instrument would have become very, very difficult. Um, and similarly for Chandra. Uh, now, this might not have been the end of the, mis of the missions had things not gone well. Uh, Kepler lost its pointing ability with one of its reaction wheels failing on it a few years ago, but it continued to complete observations of planets um, by, strange enough, using the sun to help push the satellite around. Very clever method of keeping your satellite orientated. Thankfully, both Hubble and Chandra are now fixed and they are continuing to work. Um, but it is clear that both of them are very much overdue. They are, um, they've existed for much longer than their original plan. Um, so Approaching um, retirement? Yeah, so we have to be aware that uh, both of them might only have potentially a few years left. So hopefully, hopefully... They'll sort themselves out. Um, another piece of news, unfortunately a little bit worse news, is that Kepler itself is actually on its way out. It is running out of fuel. So its K2 mission, the one where it's now pointing with the additional help of the sun, that's coming to an end too. So there won't be very many more planets coming out of the Kepler mission. There's still plenty of data to analyse, so there will be some more hiding in there. Um, but we are getting there. And then finally, the worst news of all, oh, I'm afraid. No. Yes. Um, uh, we've mentioned it before, uh, the issues with NASA's Opportunity rover, uh, that it's been suffering from a, a huge storm on the surface of Mars, which, because it's a solar-powered uh, robot, meant that its battery basically ran out of charge. Um, so it shut down kept itself um, safe, at least that was the hope. So the hibernation, kind of. Yeah, absolutely. And then... 
when the storm cleared, NASA began to start actively pinging the robot to try to get it to respond again. Um, they've been pinging it for about a month now, and it still isn't working, and the active phase of recovery is going to be coming to an end before very long, which means there is a very good chance that opportunity has now come to the end it's of not its waking life. up it might not oh. i'm afraid it looks like it's possible that the cold has had just too much a, uh, an effect on its batteries and it can't now keep itself going to be clear we haven't given up yet um nasa is going to continue to listen to the satellite to, uh, to listen to the, the probe to try to see if it wakes itself up um but the active phase of recovery has uh, is going to be coming to an end very very soon so yeah. sorry to end it on a bit of a uh, a low note there but uh, unfortunately these two things do happen and uh, satellites and probes only last for a certain period of time it's very much like human life like star life like everything we have everything is born lives out its lifetime and eventually does come to an end. But the great work that they have done in the time that they have been around. But fingers crossed that maybe opportunity might wake itself up again at some point. Hopefully. All right, well, uh, a brilliant story to start off with there and nicely tied into the stories that we had last month. I've got something just a little bit different this month. Um, so headline here is that astronomers have spotted signs that may help us identify when two supermassive black holes are about to merge. Yay! One of my favourite topics. Black holes! <laughs> so we've always talked about black holes or we, you know, in upcoming podcasts, and I'm sure in loads of previous podcasts, we've mentioned black holes, and we've talked about there being two types. So the stellar black holes created by the death of massive stars, and then you've got the supermassive black holes that lie at the centre of what we think is every large galaxy in the universe. Mm -hmm. Now, scientists have long known that nearly all massive galaxies have or contain those supermassive uh, black holes at their centres. Um, and they know that galaxies and their associated supermassive black holes must have merged uh, over time, growing bigger and bigger to give us the huge galaxies and the huge supermassive black holes that we find today. So some point in the history, galaxy merging, supermassive black hole merging would have happened. Um, and although these supermassive black holes only make up a very tiny fraction of the whole galaxy in terms of their size and their overall mass or their weight, um, they actually play a huge role in controlling the growth of the whole galaxy. So studying the supermassive black holes actually lies and kind of links in to the whole idea of galaxy evolution too. So it's a hugely important part of research. Um, they look for um, kind of... Uh, supermassive black holes um, and their existence within galaxies, uh, they do this in part because supermassive black holes, um, they pump out lots of energy into the galaxies from jets that emanate out of them. Um, now, these jets have so, so much energy that they can also cause some of the gas in the galaxy to be blown out of the galaxy, but can also heat the gas up in the galaxy. Now, we know that stars form from cool gas. When the gas is too hot, it just simply can't come together for the stars to begin to form. So if these jets coming out from the supermassive black holes are blowing out gas out of the galaxy and also heating the gas up, it's going to reduce the amount of star formation. And if you reduce the amount of star formation, in turn, it means that the supermassive black hole at the centre doesn't have so much gas or material to, to pull in, uh, for it to feed as such. Um, so not only do supermassive black holes regulate the size of a galaxy in terms of the star formation, 
it also then self-regulates its own size. So they're both very, very linked together. Now, the radio jets, um, what causes them? Where do they come from? So black holes are, as they suggest, black. We can't see them. So we have to find other ways of detecting them. And radio jets are one of those ways. So black holes have an immense amount of material. For example, the supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy, four million times the mass of our sun, crammed into a very, very small space. Um, and so they have lots and lots of gravity that they pull in some of the material around them. And if that material gets close enough, it's accelerated around that black hole, accelerated to such great speeds that it has lots and lots of energy. Eventually, that material will probably fall into the black hole. But as that material and that gas orbits around a black hole, it ends up uh, losing energy due to the magnetic stresses around a black hole. It means that eventually that material gets closer and closer towards the black hole, but that energy has to go somewhere. That energy is transformed into thermal energy. Thermal energy that heats up that gas that's falling into the black hole to millions of degrees Celsius. Uh, and if we're talking about black body radiation, the, the kind of... Uh, the light or the radiation that's emitted based on the temperature of an object, because of this huge, huge temperature, uh, that material will be emitting in the X-ray region. Mm. So around a black hole, although we can't see the black hole giving out any light, we see X-ray being emitted from the material falling into it. But that still doesn't explain the jets. The astronomers actually think they have found a very close link between the X-rays being given out from the material around the black hole and the radio jets themselves, because... Uh, Shortly after they see X-ray emission, they see signs of the radio jets. In other words, the radio emission or those radio jets are actually an echo of the X-ray emission. It happens afterwards. And because the X-rays originate from the hot infalling material, it's thought that the radio emission is regulated by that accretion, by the material falling in. So that's where the radio jets come from. They are an indirect result of material falling into a black hole. Mm. Now, the radio jets are bipolar, so they come out either side of the black hole or uh, the galaxy as we may look at it. Um, they would be parallel to the spin of the black hole. So imagine uh, a ball spinning and it's got all like the Earth and it's got its axis of rotation. The bipolar jets are like that along the axis of rotation, which is perpendicular to the rotation of the material falling in. Mm. Uh, I like to think of it a bit like a, a spinning top. So you've yeah. got the, yeah, the axis coming out perpendicular to the direction of rotation. The radio jets themselves are basically particles. Particles like electrons and protons being driven out close to the speed of light. Um, and whenever you've got uh, charged particles like those and they are accelerated into curved paths, for instance, if they follow the magnetic field lines like they do in this case, you get electromagnetic radiation or light being emitted. And if the charged particle that's being accelerated in a curved path is an electron, then the radiation it gives out we call synchrotron radiation. And in this case, when we're talking about supermassive black holes, that radio, that is radio emission. That synchrotron radiation is basically radio waves that are being emanated out as these jets. Now, we don't actually see the radio jets themselves. They are, uh, how do we put it? very linear they're not spread out over you know a huge area we're looking at one very small part a very small thin jet so what we're actually detecting are lobes on either side of the galaxy 
those lobes are basically where all the particles that have ever come out of the jet are stored. Um, a little bit like a, a cotton bud. So you've got like the stick, which is the jets, and then you've got the cotton bits on the ends, which are like those big radio <laughs> lobes. Imagine those cotton bits, though, being more like candy floss, much, much sure. bigger. Uh, they can be up to about a thousand light years across, so huge lobes of material. And because they're so big, full of lots of, of those particles, that's what we're detecting when we detect that radio light. Not the jets themselves, but the big radio lobes on either side. Now, in this case, for astronomers to have spotted signs of when two supermassive black holes are about to collide, it's radio waves that they've been looking at. So they've been using radio maps for the most powerful jet sources um, and have been looking for signs that we might expect to find when two supermassive black holes are orbiting around each other, a binary system. That's the precursor, we think, to a black hole merging. Before they merge, they've got to be orbiting around each other. So that's what we're looking for. Now, we know uh, in the past couple of years, at least we've been able to detect when black holes actually merge. Uh, gravitational wave detectors have been used as evidence, uh, such as back in 2015 when we got those two black holes, uh, smaller black holes in that case, merging together. They gave out a strong burst of gravitational waves. Although we say strong, by the time they've got to us, they're, they're much smaller and weaker detections, but we managed to detect those. So we do know that black holes merging exist. We found evidence of it. However, we don't have the means of detecting black holes in a binary system before they actually merge. Mm -hmm. So there's no way of actually detecting that they're orbiting around each other close enough. It's only when they merge that we're able to detect them using gravitational waves. That is until now. So what the astronomers have done is because supermassive black holes emit powerful jets, um, uh, if a supermassive black hole is in a binary system, which means it's orbiting around another supermassive black hole, the jets that it is emanating, those radio jets, um, they will actually change direction. So normally they would just point to the same part of the sky coming out of either side. But if it is orbiting around, around another supermassive black hole, uh, those jets actually change direction. They process. Yes, yeah. Now, it's really hard, I find, to describe what process means without a diagram. It's really hard to, to kind of describe that. But imagine you had, uh, again, a spinning top, but imagine it wasn't perfectly vertical. Instead, it was kind of wobbling as it spun. Yeah. And what you'd find, if you trace the axis of rotation, it would draw a circle in the sky or some sort of ellipse. And that's what we mean by process. That axis of rotation, the orientation of it is changing. It's not fixed to one position in the sky. So a supermassive black hole, if it was on its own, the jet would just point to one single direction in the sky. But if it's a part of a binary system, that jet will process. Mm -hmm. So we're looking for a processing radio jet, or at least evidence of it. And that's what the astronomers from the University of Hertfordshire have been doing, working with other astronomers internationally. So they studied the directions that some of the jets were emitted in using the radio data they had. Um, and they were looking for variances in the direction, but also comparing it to the directions of those big radio lobes that are found on either sides of the galaxies that the supermassive black holes are in. And what they found is that the real radio source data that they were using matched what their computer models had simulated for a processing jet. So there was jet precession in 70% of the sources that they were analysing. 
So what I'm saying here is that 75% of the data indicates that there were radio jets that were processing, giving evidence that they are part of a binary supermassive black hole system, the likely precursor of a merging black hole system. Mm. Um, and this is huge. Their results could have really important consequences on the formation of stars and galaxies. Going back to what we said at the start, they found um, that the most powerful jets were actually associated with binary black holes, so not single ones. Now, since stars can only form from cold gas, when you've got radio jets emanating out, even that X-ray gas, uh, X-ray emission that's going out, um, it will heat the gas in the galaxy around it, and that will suppress star formation. But if you've got a single supermassive black hole, those jets are only in a certain direction. They will only heat up the gas in the vicinity of those jets. If you have, however, got a binary black hole system, because those jets are processing, they're actually heating up more gas. They've got a huge area to cover, um, and it means that they can heat up the gas much more efficiently. And if they do that, you actually suppress star formation much quicker. Um, And this ties back to the whole idea of galaxy evolution and why we see some galaxies being a particular size that they are. Um, And looking back to the idea of how galaxies might have evolved and stopped growing larger and larger or what stops the galaxies growing bigger than they actually are. So that's my news story for this month. I know it was a a bit of a ramble getting through it, but actually it's so exciting because I've been looking at the idea of galaxy evolution very recently due to something else we've been doing. And the idea that we've got lots of different pieces of evidence, but it's still not quite fitting together. This is huge because it's a really big piece of evidence that might help us identify objects um, that we still want to find out lots, Mm. lots more about. So there we are. And these binary black holes, of course, the supermassive black holes, will be fantastic targets for um, uh, ELISA when it it does eventually launch. This will be the the gravitational wave detector in space. Yes. Uh, Much, much, much longer um, in laser interferometry arms than uh, the LIGO LIGO and and Virgo that we have on the ground at the moment. Yes. Exciting stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's it for uh, this month. Those are our two stories. Um, You will have your chance to be able to vote for those stories on Twitter, at ROG Astronomers. Uh, We do have the results from last month. Fingers crossed. Dara uh, gave us a a wonderful story on the habitability of Proxima Centauri b, um, and I was talking about some of the initial discoveries of the Planet Hunter Tess. 57% of the vote went to my story oh, on Tess Greg. and 43% to Dara. In all honesty, it was a great story about Tess and its initial discoveries in the first few uh, days, weeks of its actual being in operation. So, I, th- yeah. I think I Thoroughly think it was, deserved. I think it was the Vulcan story at the end. Though, <laughs> that probably I forgot about that. Edge. Yeah, I think that was probably it. Um, as I said, you can vote for the story that you like from this month at ROG Astronomers. Uh, also, the uh, next month's uh, podcast will be available on SoundCloud and iTunes. Please do give us a, a rating on iTunes if you're listening there. Uh, something else to be aware of is that we are currently in our Think Space lecture uh, series. So uh, every few weeks we have a, a lecture here at the Royal Observatory. And alongside those, there is an extra special podcast uh, with the speaker a researcher within the field and those will be uh, up online on SoundCloud as well Uh, so please do listen along to those 
Thanks very much for listening for this month. I hope you'll join us next month for more from Look Up. Thank you.